everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey, and I am joined here today by the lovely Nicole and Rebecca. This week, Rebecca is telling us all about the dancing plague, and Nicole is educating us on mass psychogenic disorders, or just psychogenic disorders, and how it relates back to the dancing plague. Um, This episode isn't necessarily forensic-focused, but it still covers some very interesting topics that I'm really excited to learn about. So I hope you guys enjoy. And as a rare occurrence, this episode has no listener's discretion advised. So um, yeah, with that, I will pass it on to Rebecca. Thank you, Journey. So to get started, uh, the Dancing Plague is an event that was occurring in medieval and Renaissance times in Europe. And despite the most well-known dancing plague occurring in 1518 France, which I will get into later, the dancing plague actually began, as far as written records are concerned anyways, in 7th century Europe, so about the 600s, and continued periodically until 17th century Europe. So I couldn't find information about the occurrences of 17th century Europe, but I am going to go a bit into like the earliest that I can find. Um, But just before I continue, I did want to state that although there are many sources online uh, that detail the history of the dancing plague and a lot of historians have discussed it, um, given all of these events have occurred within like a lot of centuries ago that the history was recorded um at the time that these events were recorded they usually recorded history in a very like skewed way or diseases were blamed on what they believed to be true at the time such as supernatural entities like demons and curses because of all of the information that occurred throughout history and how rapidly our science has changed and evolved there's a lot of conflicting information regarding the causes of these and also the exact circumstances of events again because I mean, even to today, history is told how the writer wants to tell it. So they might be leaving stuff out or they might embellish some things, but I tried to collect the best that I could. So with that being said, the first recorded case of a dancing plague that I could find occurred in the year 1021 on Christmas Eve in Kjölbjerg, Germany. And I am pretty sure that is the correct pronunciation, but it does have some fun accents in there. So I am doing my best. Um, But on this Christmas Eve in Kielbeck of 1021, it's reported that 18 people gathered outside of a local town church during the service. And they began dancing with, quote, wild abandon, unquote. And because of this, The priest holding the service felt that he was unable to hold mass as the dancers outside were causing too much of a disturbance for him. So he went outside in the middle of mass and ordered them to stop. The dancers just, you know, dancing, ignored the priest's demands. They supposedly didn't want to stop. So they began holding hands and dancing in a circle while clapping and cheering and chanting even more. So according to a translated from Middle English document that recorded this event, they danced in a, quote, ring dance of sin, unquote. Um, And according to the local chronicler of the town, this appeared to greatly enrage the priest. And as such, he cursed the dancers to dance for an entire year without stopping as punishment. 
Apparently, this curse worked on the dancers, as it is said according to historical records that the 18 dancers did not stop until Christmas Eve of the following year, when at this time they finally regained control of their own bodies and fell into a deep sleep that some of them never woke up from. So while there were likely more instances of the dancing plague between this time, the next plague that I could find uh, reliable information on occurred in the German town of Erfurt in 1247. In this case, it was recorded that 200 people gathered on a bridge over the Moselle River, and they danced without stopping until the bridge could no longer hold the weight of the people, and it ultimately collapsed. And this resulted in most of the 200 people drowning. And another case was recorded in 1374, when the dancing plague appeared to have crossed country borders as it affected in Germany and France. So in this event of 1340, sorry, 1374, it was reported that thousands of individuals were plagued with unstoppable dancing, with many dancing for days and weeks at a time, while screaming and crying about terrible visions they were having, and they were begging for their souls to be saved by monks and priests in the towns. So according to these records, the dancing plague of 1374 lasted for about six months, with some individuals dying after breaking their bones from the intense and prolonged dancing or dying from exhaustion because of, again, the prolonged dancing. So although there have been, as I just mentioned, only two of them, many recorded events of dancing plagues around Europe before the 18th century, um, the most well-known is the one that I kind of wanted to go into more detail about today, uh, and that is the dancing plague of 1518. So despite there being written records of many of the dancing plagues, the most famous of them all was in 1518 in the town of Strasbourg, which today is in France, but when it occurred, it was in the borders of the Holy Roman Empire. So the reason for this one being the most famous is likely due to the fact that this dancing plague was arguably the most well-documented as it was occurring and in the years to follow for historians and researchers. So this 1518 plague was documented through municipal orders, uh, sermons that were given by religious leaders during the event, as well as some very detailed descriptions of the events by uh Paracelsus, who was a famous physician of the Renaissance, who I will talk briefly about later in his theories of what caused the dancing plague. So to start off, in July of 1518, a woman whose name was Frau Trophe or Trau Frau Trophy, I'm not positive how to pronounce this, so I'm going to say Trophe. Um, she was a citizen of Strasbourg, uh, and she stepped into the street and just started to dance. While this might not have been a weird sight to see initially, as this town did use dancing as sort of a form of expression and fun, as obviously a lot of societies do today, uh, people were reported that it appeared she was unable to stop dancing and that she was moving very erratically. So Trophée is reported to have continued dancing until passing out from exhaustion, but this didn't stop her as as soon as she awoke from her exhaustion, she would just stand up and continue dancing again. 
No one knew initially how long this was going to last, nor how they could stop her. However, she continued to dance for days on end in the cycle of dancing herself to exhaustion and then resting and then starting again. And at some point, people just kind of started to join in. So while this was happening within like the first week or so, people began to speculate as to the reason for Trophée's seemingly uncontrollable dancing, or sorry, dancing. (laughs) Um, They offered theories such as the devil was taking control of her body because she was, uh, she had sinned too much and he was just taking control. Um, But another one that will come up prominently later is that she was cursed by St. Vetus, who is a silicon, not silicon, he was a Sicilian, sorry, martyr, who, according to lore, was said to curse anybody who sinned with uncontrollable dancing mania. So... After around a week of Trophea being unable to stop dancing, people were starting to notice a couple were joining in. Authorities decided to intervene, and they ended up bringing her to the shrine of St. Vetus in the Vosges Mountains uh, in an attempt to rid her of her sins, hoping to cure her. So in addition to not helping Trophea break the dancing spell. Um, I believe this did work like within the weeks, but initially word was getting out that she was up there still in her plague, still dancing. Um, Within the days of this occurring, more than 30 people had gone into the streets of Strasbourg where she had started dancing and doing the same thing, just dancing uncontrollably with seemingly no end in sight and causing injuries to themselves as they danced frivolously and erratically. So through this ordeal, the clergy, which are people ordained for religious duties, so like priests and monks and stuff like that, Uh, they became more convinced that St. Vetus was responsible for this plague. But despite the clergy stating St. Vetus was responsible, which given this was in the Roman Empire, the clergy at the time did have a lot of influence, the city councillors had chosen to listen to the word of the Guild of Physicians instead to try to get advice on how to stop this event from occurring. So, The Guild of Physicians ended up telling counselors that they believed the dancing plague was as a result of a natural disease that came from the affected people's blood overheating, which according to science of the time, meant that the remedy for people who were affected from overheating blood was that they had to shed blood or they had to make them bleed, which oftentimes in this time period was done through leeches or causing small uh, lacerations in the body just to cause some blood to shed. However, despite what medical practices of the time had suggested they do to cure those affected, physicians instead looked back on history to try and cure the dancing people the way that they had tried to do it in the past, like in the 10, like in the, the dancing plagues of the former years, which was order them to just keep dancing until they were cured which is a little strange but let's keep going so in order to try and help those who couldn't stop dancing and also to try and get them to dance somewhere that wasn't in the middle of the street and causing kind of a a commotion and causing more people to join in 
the town council had ordered the local carpenters and leather workers to transform their communal work halls into temporary dance halls. And in addition, they also set up dance floors in the town's horse and grain markets that were fully in public view. So the dancers could have kind of, I don't know why they thought this was a good idea if people were just starting to dance because they saw the dancers. But basically they thought if they gave the dancers a platform to dance in public, maybe they would stop. But not knowing if the dance halls and floors would be enough to keep these people dancing until they were cured, the council also hired dozens of local musicians from town to continuously play music at the dance halls, and they also hired healthy dancers who were not plagued by the dance mania um, to dance with the plagued to encourage the plagued dancers to not stop dancing in hopes that if they just tired themselves out and did this enough, that eventually it would cure them. And as you may have guessed by now, the dance order was not the solution to curing this plague. Um, Again, given that the Renaissance was a very religious time, many healthy people who saw these plague dancers when going to the makeshift dance halls, um, they became convinced that this was the work of St. Vetus, who like cursing Trophea was cursing people to dance if they had sinned. And as many things that were very like, at least normal in today's society back then were considered to be sinful. Many of the onlookers began to feel affected by it and joined in on the dancing, believing that they were unable to stop as they believed they had sinned at some point as well. And St. Vetus was likely to want to go after them as well. So within a month of Trofea walking into the streets and dancing uncontrollably in mid-July 1518, over 400 people had succumbed and they found themselves unable to control their bodies as they maniacally danced. So seeing that their initial plan of encouraging dancing didn't work, the council basically decided to do a complete 180 on their attempts at a cure by getting the plagued people out of sight of the healthy townspeople and banning almost all forms of dancing and music in the city until September 1518, which reading it made me giggle a little because it reminded me of Footloose. (laughs) Um... But strangely, even though they thought music and dancing was the cause of this problem, they didn't ban all dancing and music because they didn't think that all instruments had the same effect on the the plague. So it was believed that string instruments were less likely to cause mania than percussion instruments. So it was deemed okay to have strings playing at special events, such as wedding and religious events, as long as the people danced only like a little bit and were only listening to string music because they assumed that that wouldn't have as much of an effect on them. I don't know where they got this idea, but I think that's really interesting and strange. But Anyways, <laughs> um, so as music and dancing was almost completely banned, the plague dancers at this time were still in view of the regular townspeople, which obviously the council didn't like because they thought more people were still going to get involved. So how did the council solve this? 
uh, by shipping all of the afflicted people on a three-day wagon ride to the shrine of St. Vitus, where Trophea had initially been attempted to be cured. So once they got to this shrine, priests lit incense and they began chanting Latin in incantations, which basically is like a spell or something that's supposed to kind of cause some sort of like magical cure or some sort of spell on a person. Um, and then once they chanted these and everything, all the incense were lit, they then had everyone that was still under the effect of the dancing plague uh, lay under the carving of St. Vetus, which off just side note in and of itself probably would have been very difficult given the way they described how erratically they were dancing. Um, and once under the carving, they were then placed with crosses held in their hands and red shoes placed on their feet before they sprinkled the plagued with holy water and also painted crosses with holy oil on their faces. So somehow this religious ritual actually worked <laughs> as within a week of it occurring, it was reported that almost all of the afflicted had stopped dancing. The townspeople believed that the ritual worked and that St. Vetus had forgiven the affected people of their sins, hence why this plague had finally ended. So in total, the dancing plague of 1518 lasted over a month. So it ended sometime in late August to early September, and it had started in mid-July. And... The plague, unfortunately, as you probably would have expected, did not end without casualties. So while the official death toll of the dancing plague cannot be confirmed, it was recorded that over 400 people were affected at its peak. And sorry, over 400 people were affected in total, but at its peak, so when most people were affected, up to 15 people per day were dying of this plague, either due to exhaustion from the, the repetitive dancing or from wounds that they were accruing during the erratic dancing. Because it was reported that many people were breaking ribs, they were breaking their legs, they were just getting ridiculous blisters and bleeding on their feet because they were never off their feet and people ended up succumbing to injuries of those so, it's so sorry to interrupt it's no so crazy to me that people can continue through with something like this when it's causing them like immense pain like i feel like you would have in your brain the thought of oh this hurts i should probably find a way to stop and like i get that they're unable to if it's a disease and disorder but like i don't know it's interesting to me it's hard to wrap my head around no, I completely agree. And I think that's part of the reason so many people find this part of history so unbelievable because it's, it it's really hard to is, believe. It really is hard to believe. It, it really is. Like, how can people literally dance themselves to death? Mm -hmm. it, it, makes, it makes no sense to us. But all in all, with the Dancing Plague of 1518 alone, it is believed that hundreds of people ended up dying during the events this summer um, in what is now France, but formerly was the Roman Empire. So 
while the true cause of the dancing plagues that occurred throughout Europe, throughout history, are still not confirmed today, they do have many theories and speculations as to the cause, both from the time that they occurred and from today. So I'm going to briefly go over just a couple of the historical and modern causes that were believed. But like I had said, it's still a lot of speculation and theorization because it happened so long ago with such, I don't want to say inaccurate records, but we know how history was written when they wanted it to sound good and in their favor. So it's it's hard to get an accurate depiction of the truth. Um, but to start, I briefly mentioned earlier the Renaissance physician Paracelsus and his detailed descriptions of the events that occurred in 1518. So Paracelsus was so fascinated by the dancing plague of 1518 that he had returned to the town some years later. I think it was between four and nine years later um, in an attempt to find the root cause of it all because he just couldn't get this event out of his mind so he had a theory when he got there after reading all of the documents and this theory was widely accepted for quite a while but of course today it's not accepted just based on the findings of modern science and also his findings ended up being very misogynistic but at the time no one cared about that um (laughs) But basically, his theory was that Fra Trophea, sorry, who was the first woman of the plague of 1518, had actually faked her dancing plague in order to embarrass her husband, Herr Trophea. So Paracelsus stated that in order to appear as ill as possible while also embarrassing her husband as much as possible, she danced and sang uncontrollably in the streets for everyone to see. And apparently this worked. Her husband was really embarrassed. And after seeing the success that Trophea had in embarrassing her husband, a lot of other women were inspired to do the same thing to their husbands and ended up joining in in the erratic dancing in the streets. So Paracelsus formally named this form of dancing mania, uh, quote, Coria Lesvica, which means, quote, caused by voluptuous desires without fear or respect, unquote. That seems like a bit much for what it was describing. You know what I mean? (laughs) I agree. I completely agree. (laughs) Um, So that was obviously what Paracelsus felt some of the women were afflicted by, but obviously not all of the people with dancing mania were women. So he needed something else to explain what everyone else was experiencing. So he ended up classifying two other types of dancing mania that could have been the reason that some people were affected. And he called these Coria Imaginativa, which was caused by the quote, imagination from rage and swearing unquote. Um, And also Coria Naturalis, which was considered to be a much milder form of the plague. But this was caused by what he had said, corporal causes. And I tried so hard to find what he meant by corporal causes. But no matter what I looked up, it just brought me back to articles quoting this disease that he had defined. So I'm wondering if that could just be psychological causes like stress or like physical exhaustion or something that led them to it. But 
that's just me speculating because I'm really not sure. Do you think it has anything to do with like corporal punishment? I'm th- I think that is a possibility. Like I'm wondering if they, because like looking back to the theories about Saint Vetus cursing them to dance, and corporal punishment is based on obviously crimes so heinous that like people think very differently and there's capital punishment and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if maybe they feel they sin so badly that it has such a mental toll on them that that's why they're inflicted by it. Um, but I couldn't find anything that confirmed this. Cause again, it just brought me back to this same quote from this same physician. Okay. Yeah. Cause what's um, the difference between corporal and capital punishment? Is capital the death penalty? Capital punishment is the death penalty, but you're right. I have just been using them interchangeably, and I'm actually not positive. <laughs> At least I think they're different. Uh, let's so see. From a quick search, Google says that capital punishment differs from corporal punishment in the fact that capital punishment results in the death of the offender. Corporal punish uses pain or harm inflicted on the body of the offender as a punishment for a crime and other form of transgression. So I guess it's like death or abuse. Yeah. Which one? Oh, interesting. Okay. Which I, I guess like the plague is a form of like corporal punishment because yeah. it's just torture using your body. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um. So. These three different forms of chorea, like the uh, chorea lesvisca, um, and then chorea imaginativa and chorea naturalis, he gave all of these a broad term to kind of umbrella them, which he called uh, choreomania, which I think is really interesting just because, like, you know, choreography is dancing and mania is, like, for lack of better words, crazy, even though I know that's not quite correct. <laughs> But I just thought that was a really interesting uh, way to term that. But moving on from the choreomania side of theory, another couple of theoried causes, which I already explained throughout the discussion, uh, were quite religious in nature, just being the Renaissance times, and it was a heavily religiously influenced time. Um People believed that either those with the dancing mania were possessed by the devil or that they were being cursed by St. Vetus for sinning and committing sin. So I won't get too much more into that just because it seems like it was pretty well covered in the history itself. Like they had to go to the shrine to try to cure their sins and they were cleansed of their sins, which is why the dancing plague stopped. Um, But other theorized causes, which were briefly mentioned um, are medical ideas that have been long debunked because obviously science and medical science has evolved greatly since the 1500s. One of these theories did include the overheating of blood, which although at the time we know our blood can't overheat, like, yes, we can get fevers, but it doesn't mean our blood is hot. Um, At the time, this was a very real diagnosis with what they believed to be a very real treatment which was bloodshedding, which is why it confuses me so much that they didn't just follow the physician orders at the time of bloodshedding. I'm not saying it would have worked, but I feel like maybe it could have had more of an effect than just making them continue dancing. I don't know. Just a thought. (laughs) Um, But 
Moving on from the historical ones, some historians did theorize that the Danson Plague may have been a result of ergot, which is a mold that is found on infected and damp rye that is known to cause hallucinations, twitching, and involuntary jerking of the body. So although this does sound like it could be a very plausible explanation of the time, this cause was debunked, and I guess we can't say it's been officially debunked just because it was only by one historian, but he does seem quite knowledgeable in his field. Um, it was debunked by historian John Waller, whose research focused on early historical medical science in society. And he has said the reason that it likely wasn't ergot was because while it does cause the symptoms aforementioned, such as the hallucinations and twitching and uncontrollable movement, it also causes a lot a lack of blood flow to the extremities, which means that someone poisoned with it likely couldn't dance for days on end without stopping. And then another interesting theorized cause that I think is worth mentioning is tarantula and scorpio bites or scorpion, sorry. So while this wasn't a theorized, um, cause of the 1518 plague um it was a theorized cause of like various other dancing plagues throughout the time that they were affecting people which by the way were happening up to the late 17th century which is crazy to me like they were happening from like the year like 1021 to like late 1600s on and off which is so strange and only in like certain parts of europe but besides that uh, the theory for tarantula and scorpion bites being the uh, cause of it is that um, around a century before the 1518 plague, in, a woman in Italy had woken up from a midday nap in a nearby field, yelling that she had been bitten by a tarantula, and before long, the venom had caused her to start moving around very convulsively and involuntarily. So as she made her way into the town center, still twitching and convulsing erratically, which kind of appeared as dancing to the townspeople, other townspeople began joining her in this dance. So many people at the time actually believed that the only way to cure a tarantula bite and get rid of the venom was to basically dance the venom away. So just move continuously to work the venom out of your system. And according to historians, this was so well known at the time that many towns actually regularly employed musicians to play for people who were suffering from tarantula bites to help them continue dancing with some sort of like encouragement so that they could get rid of the venom. And this is what they had called tarantism which I think is so neat. I had never heard of it before and would never think that a tarantula bite would potentially be the cause of a dancing plague. But yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> cool, but unfortunate. Um, so the last potential cause that I'm going to mention today, and this is kind of segueing into what Nicole's going to start talking to us about, is that the townspeople were actually affected by a mass psychogenic illness. So I'm not going to go too much into detail about this as I, again, Nicole is going to talk more about it. Um, 
But basically, it was believed that due to the stressors of the time, uh, so like there was significant political instability and poor living conditions, and they just had overall high daily stressors affecting the whole town. They just believed that all of these stressors in life became too much for everybody, and they began to suffer sort of a mass psychological break, basically. So one person started to kind of break down, and they experienced this breakdown in the form of uncontrollable dancing. While others saw this, they sort of started to feed on it and kind of feel the stress that they were feeling and it made them kind of worked up and they started to release it in the same way. And this is essentially one of the beliefs of how the dancing plague started. So with all that being said, we still don't know the true cause of the dancing plague because there are so many conflicting theories all throughout history and mass psychogenic illnesses themselves are still while we believe they are a real thing, they are still very debated because there's a lot of people that believe that there are alternative reasons for the causes of these random mass psychogenic illnesses that are occurring. Um, But trying to figure out the causes of these dancing plagues aside, that is a brief history of the dancing plague and how it occurred throughout the early centuries of Europe, but primarily Germany and Italy, which I find bizarre as well that it was so centralized to a specific uh, area. Um, And then also just a slightly more in-depth history of the Dancing Plague of 1518, which I'm sure some of our viewers have heard about, but maybe not all of them, as I told my mom about this yesterday, and she'd never heard of it. And that really surprised me. (laughs) So... I don't really know when I first heard about this phenomenon, but I've always found it really fascinating just because, I mean, like Nicole was saying earlier, it's such an unbelievable event that it's really hard to imagine that this ever actually could have happened, but it very much was real. And hundreds of people actually did lose their lives by dancing to death, which is crazy, but it wasn't crazy to them. But beside the point, um, It's really hard to determine whether or not we're ever going to get a confirmed diagnosis or cause of how this happened because the historical documents of the time have to be taken a little with a grain of salt. Um, But with that being said, I think it's still really interesting to theorize on it. And I think we're getting closer to finding out what caused this, but whether or not we can actually fully determine it without somehow causing another dancing plague, which I don't think anyone wants, um, isn't going to bring a hundred percent confirmation, but yeah, that is the dancing plague. I believe it was a little shorter than we usually go, but with it being such a historical case, there's not many updates. No, that's all right. I didn't realize that there was more than one dancing plague either. Oh, I didn't either. I started researching this thinking it was going to be super straightforward, only the 1518 plague. And the second I looked up dancing plague, I was like, oh, this is this happened for like 700 years. Oh, my God. I'm curious. Oh, sorry. Um, I know you were saying like with the stresses um, possibly inducing this psychogenic illness, which I'll kind of touch on later too, but I'd be curious to kind of like map out the timelines of when these dancing plagues happen to see if there are like 
common stressors, like you said, in their environment, or if it's just super random coincidence type things. Um, but I feel like there'd be something very, very similar between many of those plagues. I agree. And I think it definitely, like, the fact that it only occurred, it occurred in Germany, Italy, and yeah. And France, yeah, it happened in 1518 France. So the fact that it only occurred in three countries for so long, like for 700 years, I think that definitely had an effect on them because there were a lot that believed it was due to like religious curses because of sinning. So I think that people just out of pure fear that, oh my gosh, I've sinned, this happened to those sinners. And I think as a combination of mass psychogenic illness and I don't want to say religious fear because these people really obviously believed in their religions, but because of their beliefs had fear that if they did wrong in the eyes of, you know, their gods, that something bad would happen. So I think it's very plausible that because it happened in such a small area of Europe, that word just spread really fast that, oh, these people were cursed with a dancing plague because they sinned. And then... I mean, you know how white lies and rumors spread. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I would love to just know what happened. Like, I wish there wasn't so much uncertainty around it because I'm so curious. Um, it sucks, too, because the only way to do that is to unfortunately go back in time. <laughs> Which exactly. Is, it almost we'll do it one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It almost reminds me of like the Salem witch trials where there's so many different like causes yeah. and now people are like, oh, there was just like a fungus in the bread or whatever that was causing everyone to be thought of as witches or whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, very interesting. And now I'm really excited to learn about psychogenic disorders because I actually don't know anything about them. So Nicole, do you want to tell us what they're all about? I would love to. Um, I'm first going to kind of go over what psychogenic disorders are generally, and then I'll kind of touch on mass psychogenic disorders. Um, but defined by the APA, which is the American Psychology Association, um, psychogenic disorders are, quote, any disorder that cannot be accounted for by any identifiable organic dysfunction and is believed to be due to psychological factors such as emotional conflict or stress, end quote. So basically, it's you have this thing, you have symptoms, we don't know what causes it. Um, probably some emotional stress is what's causing it. So that's great no definitive line for this, I'd say. But within these psychogenic disorders, you have a subcategory called psychogenic movement disorders. And these include unwanted and involuntary movements. So you have like spasms, shaking or muscle jerks, that kind of thing. And in some cases, patients may also have difficulties with their balance and their gait while walking. And these, again, are all part of these movement disorders. And so the disease, as in the psychogenic disorder, psychogenic diseases, they closely mimic other movement disorders that exist. So you have like tremors, you've got Parkinson's or um, tics, that kind of thing. And this makes it that much more difficult for physicians to actually diagnose since there are so many shared factors and criteria or diagnostic criteria between both like organic, so 
like, I guess, naturally occurring diseases, um, or I guess any disease in and of itself, and psychogenic diseases, which are kind of like placebo diseases in a way, in, if that makes sense. Um, but these diseases are also formally known as hysteria or conversion disorder. But there's been a lot of debate over the past years on what to actually formally call this disease. Um, psychogenic, the term psychogenic can be kind of reassuring in a sense to patients since it's alluding to the fact that there's no, you don't have any brain damage. You don't have any damage to your nerves. There's no spinal cord damage, all of that stuff. Um, and it also acknowledges other psychological factors that can be at play, which like discussed can include stress. Um, the big thing is the word disease is because it's not quite viral. It's not quite infectious. It's, it's like when you take the definition of a disease, it's not really that. Um, but it keeps its name as psychogenic disorders as of currently. Um, the diagnosis for these disorders almost seem like more of an exclusion of other possibilities rather than knowing for sure that it's this one thing. And I'm not sure if that's how most uh, diagnoses happen is that you have a list and you kind of say, Oh, that's not, it can't be this can't be that. Um, but that's what happens for this. They basically go through and see, can this be caused by something else? Yes. No. If it's no, they look for another cause. So blood tests or other diagnostic testing like brain imaging will often look normal or at least within normal limits or within normal ranges. And they won't show any biological cause that would explain any symptom seen, especially the motor abnormalities. And because of this lack of diagnostic testing, there's a two-step approach that physicians will take in an attempt to properly diagnose psychogenic disorders. First, they'll make a positive diagnosis that the movements and symptoms are in fact psychogenic rather than due to other organic means. And then second, it's important to look and see if other psychiatric disorders such as depression or anxiety could also be at the forefront um, causing these abnormal movements or symptoms. So I guess a lot of the times you have this comorbidity or coexistence of other mental health issues and psychogenic um, diseases. So these disorders, these psychogenic disorders, they're more so your body's manifestation and response to stress or other external variables. So um, like Rebecca was saying, any like social environmental stresses could have a play on this, any personal emotional stress, that kind of stuff. Um, and in within these psychogenic movement disorders, there are various subcategories and these include tremors, dystonia, myoclonus, Parkinsonism, tics, paroxysmal dyskinesia, and gait disorders. And I will say that each of these that I just listed are psychogenic in nature, um, but they also do exist organically. I just was lazy and didn't want to say psychogenic before each and every one of those and thought it would be a bit of a tongue twister. Um 
So just keep in mind, all of those that I listed that I'll be discussing are psychogenic in nature. So tremors um, are rhythmic contractions of muscles and psychogenic tremors account for almost half of all of these movement disorders reported, making it the most common compared to the others. Surprisingly, though, these tremors can be distractible, meaning that if you were to completely focus on a separate task and something else entirely, the tremors can almost completely go away, um, which I thought was really interesting. And I looked it up and apparently most ticks um, or sorry, most tremors are or I'm thinking of ticks. I don't know. Anyways, most of them are distractible. Um, but it's the suppressing that makes it difficult in non-psychogenic cases. Next, we have psychogenic dystonia, and this can be defined as, quote, involuntary, sustained, or repetitive patterned muscle contractions or spasms, frequently causing squeezing, twisting, or other movements or abnormal postures, end quote. So from my understanding, this is kind of... I don't know if you guys have seen it online. It's like stiff person syndrome. This is what these kind of remind me like. It's like your body just seizes up and you contort in these weird ways and your muscles just stay like that and you can't come out of it for quite a while sometimes. Um, so these are kind of making me think of that. I don't know how actually similar they are though. Um, but closely related, there are the psychogenic myoclonus, uh, which is when there are unexpected and involuntary muscle jerks to your body. And while most of us may be feel familiar with Parkinson's disease, um, Parkinsonism is a term used to describe when there are, like you have clinical symptoms uh, that are seen in Parkinson's, um, but you may also have symptoms seen in like other related disorders. So tremors can exist. Uh, the slowing of speech and gait can also exist as well as abnorm abnormalities in speech and gait. So it's not quite a Parkinson, like it's not a Parkinson's diagnosis, but there's enough sub symptoms in a way to create this term Parkinsonism and have it as like an umbrella diagnosis, I guess. Um, but unlike psychogenic tremors, psychogenic Parkinsonism is one of the least reported subcategories, which to me personally, I find a bit odd since tremors are included within Parkinsonism. Um, I'm not really sure what the main big differences are or why they aren't kind of all lumped into one subcategory. Again, though, I am no expert. Uh, I assume there's a reason for this and like there are most things. But um, yeah, I just find it odd that psych psychogenic tremors can be symptoms of psychogenic Parkinsonism, but they're two separate things. I don't know. I'm confusing myself trying to explain this. Um, but interestingly, there's been some response to placebo medication with patients suffering from psychogenic Parkinsonism. Um, so that's kind of in, like interesting. There's some process, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Potential progress, I guess. 
in this field uh, in the next few years, few decades. Um, so hopefully we'll see some stuff coming out in the news about that. Um, next, though, are psychogenic ticks. These are defined as, quote, repeated, patterned, individually recognizable movements, end quote. It's not uncommon for this subcategory to coexist with other psychogenic disorders. And while not distractible like psychogenic tremors, these tics can apparently be suppressed, meaning that the patient is able to stop their tics from happening. Next, we have psychogenic, wow, psychogenic paroxysm paroxysmal dyskinesia. Probably butchered that. But this is when abnormal movements are only seen during certain times, basically. Um, so paroxysmal means that symptoms are only seen at like certain specific given times. And broadly speaking, dyskinesia is an involuntary and erratic movement to the body, often in the face, arms, legs, or like your trunk, so your torso and whatnot. And the movements can range from rapid jerking to slowed muscle spasms. And it's also been said that the movements are often fluid in nature and look almost dance-like, apparently. So as soon as I read that, I thought maybe that this could have been like a part of that explanation as to what had happened with these dancing plagues, especially if there was a whole bunch of like economical, social environmental, like all of these stressors um, at this time period. But lastly, we have psychogenic gait disorders, and they basically just have to do with the way someone walks and as well as their balance. And this subcategory can present itself in a variety of ways, and they're often coupled with other psychogenic disorders. So I guess it's very common for a lot, or not a lot, but there to be some overlap in disorders, um, at least psychogenic disorders in nature. And like Rebecca mentioned, mass psychogenic disorders could have been a possible explanation as to why these dancing plagues um, could have happened. And these disorders are basically... Well, they are psychogenic disorders, but on a much larger scale, including more people. So there's more people involved in it. And it's when a group of people believe that they're suffering from the same illness when there's no identifiable cause or medical explanation for it. And it's sometimes referred to as his mass hysteria, which we may have heard before, or epidemic hysteria. Yeah, Um so with mass psychogenic illness, there's more often than not some form of shared trigger. And some common triggers can be bad smells or kind of like an off, something that smells off, um, and rumors that there's a public exposure to some sort of toxin or poison or just kind of that like word of mouth, hey, like I heard this, pass it on to your neighbor, and then it kind of creates this mass hysteria. Um, and then from that point on, it's just kind of like a waterfall effect. Once one person starts to feel sick, there's this shared belief as to what caused this illness. Um, and then that begins to circulate among people. And then others in the group start to feel sick. And then they others and it kind of snowball effects. And then they all share similar symptoms. Um, this is sorry. This I great. don't mean to interrupt. That's okay. Um, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole on the Wikipedia page of mass psychogenic illnesses. Um, 
and I know Wikipedia isn't always the most reliable, but they have a list of basically historically all of the basically diseases, quote unquote, I guess that initially were believed to be something. I don't want to say this isn't serious, but you know what I mean? Like they thought they were actually like epidemics that might be occurring in a city, but it turns out that it's just for example, like one of the ones that I had read was that it was a group of high school girls in, I believe, Spain, who had recently watched a vampire movie, I think. And I'm sorry, I am really super paraphrasing because I just I went through this list so quick, just reading all of them. And I was like, this is crazy. But basically, these girls watched this movie and believed so strongly that they might have been, like, affected by the movie that they started just rapidly, like, fainting in class and getting all of the same symptoms as, like, the victims in the film. And it it turned out that the common trigger was, like, this movie that was very popular amongst young teens in this country. And I just think that's so strange. Like, it it reminds me a little bit of, like, twilight in terms of how (laughs) intensively like into so many girls got into that movie yeah including myself obviously we didn't get that into it but i just like they really can be caused by such thing like even just movies that might stress people out and be like oh my god what if and if it causes enough people stress then it could definitely cause something like this yeah no, that's totally true. And like, it's interesting to see the various types of triggers that exist too. Like, yeah, it reminds me of all of those like girls that would pretend that they were be- bitten by a vampire as soon as Twilight came out. So then they sh- started showing symptoms of being a vampire and all of this stuff. Um, so it's like, it's pretty well that, but on like, I, it didn't really give a, a, number of people i would like to think that it's above five for it to be like mass psychogenic maybe above 10 15 um i'm not positive on that one um but in some cases and while most of these cases the first person to have like been ground zero for all of this for this illness or for this disease, um, they often are suffering uh, real symptoms and nothing's made up. They genuinely felt sick with something. But I think from my understanding, it's then that group belief that, oh, you're not feeling well. Well, I smelt something bad in the lunchroom today. And you know what? Like I was in the lunchroom with you too, and I'm not feeling well as well. I have a headache. I'm sharing all of these things. So then it just kind of becomes, like I said, like it's a snowball effect of people may think that they're experiencing these symptoms and they may very well may be like physically feeling the symptoms um, because some symptoms surprisingly can range from like neurological issues to movement disorders to blindness and pain. Um, I find it very like for me personally, it's kind of hard to distinguish are you trying hard or are you actually experiencing something like this? And I know it's because I've never experienced anything of the sort. Um, But like, I can still kind of understand that I've smelt some really bad things and then not felt great after. So I feel like if there were a whole bunch of people not smelling or smelling not great things, 
I can understand that. I guess I don't know what I'm trying to get at. I just I just find it an interesting thing. I find it very interesting. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> no, um, I agree. I think it's so interesting how how like powerful our brains are yeah. that they can convince us that like no, we're actually ill and give us physical symptoms. Yeah, and like there's um, no other cause to it. It's just your brain's like, nope, we're gonna feel like this today. So literally, did you up. find any? Um, sorry. Did you find any um relation to like Munchausen's by proxy or like any of those kind of things? Because it almost feels like that, right? I didn't see anything um while I was researching like stand out to me with Munchausen's or um fully ado. I forget which one is which, um, but I have a very sneaking suspicion that they are related in some way or like it has to do with that same similar mentality. Yeah, um, definitely. So I wouldn't be surprised if someone down the line comes out with a, hey, this is probably what's causing <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, that'd be very interesting. In a not so much like mass psychogenic illness sense, but also just like talking about how like we so strongly feel these physical senses of illness when we like, obviously there's nothing physical causing them, but like even just thinking of like anxiety disorder Mm -hmm. when like I remember before being like Medicaid and stuff like that. And just like, I feel like so strongly that I'm going to throw up or I have these intense, intense stomach problems but it's completely caused by like whatever is happening in my head, in my brain at the time. Like my thoughts are yeah. completely triggering these physical sensations to happen. So I can completely understand how this can occur. But I just, even though like I have anxiety disorder, all that stuff, I just still can't wrap my head around, even with like a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, <laughs> just how our brains can be so strong as to cause literal physical sensations within our bodies that feel like so life-threatening. Yeah. I think it's because it's such a, like on a grand scale, like we can emphasize or empathize and sympathize. I don't know what the difference is, but understand like the anxiety and like the, not to lessen it, but like we can experience those and we understand those and we know what that is. So we can understand that level, but then to be like, Oh crap. Like my, I've never been blind when I get into a panic attack, but like to know that that does happen to some people, um, not to that same extent, but it's just so cool. It's so cool what the brain can do. It's so crazy. Cause I am a raging hypochondriac. So (laughs) when I get sick, it does not take much to convince me of the very worst. And I find that if I just like sit and I think about it too much, because when you said like placebo medication was like helping, Mm -hmm. I 100% understand how it would. Because if I thought I was taking something that would help me, I would like all of my symptoms would go away because nothing's actually wrong with me. I'm just making it up because I'm so afraid of being sick that I'm like, inventing ways that I could be sick. Yeah. No, I totally get that. Um, yeah. I find that I'm the same way too. Like it's 
I'm just not going to go on that tangent. It makes sense in my head, but I know as soon as I say it out loud, <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> what were you going to say though? I'm curious. I can cut it out. Um, I just like, I forget the point of what I was going to say, but because I very much can relate to this whole hypochondriac, like I have even with like, I had an instance with my tooth where I had convinced myself I had jaw cancer because I had like this painful tooth. My grandpa had oral cancer, like all of this stuff. But then like I brushed my teeth more. That seemed (laughs) to help. That was kind of like a placebo. Um, I realized that I hadn't been to the dentist in five years. So (laughs) maybe that could be it as well. So exactly. Like, and it's, I kind of will discuss this a little bit too, but like, if you can find logical explanations for what's going on, then it reduces that anxiety to it all, which then reduces those physical symptoms, which I find very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have another question for you. Um, Yeah. Stress-induced migraines, would those be considered Mm -hmm. a psychogenic disorder? Because technically the stress is all in your head, but you're experiencing physical symptoms of your stress. Yeah. I would say that's a hard question because I think it's possible, but like obviously none of us quite have the medical experience to talk in depth about it. We can't confirm it, but just based on the research that we've done, like it, I think it's possible that it could be a psychogenic illness, but obviously it it kind of I don't know the word I'm looking for right now, but it it expands into something real, which obviously people with these psychogenic illnesses do experience, but mm-hmm. I I don't know, I just feel like migraines are so intense that it can be more than a psychogenic but no, yeah. you're right. Like when stress is the causer, like it gets into so much of a more complicated conversation it's almost like a riddle yeah i was gonna say i think it depends on how you pull apart the definition like if you're just seeing as like if you're just considering psychogenic disorders as not having an explainable cause but you have symptoms but then the cause also being stress like then that falls into like, then I can understand, okay, if we know stress is the cause though, mm-hmm. then it's a known cause. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, it's so, like, I, like Rebecca said, the line is blurred a little bit between the two. Yeah. Um, the only thing that would make me think, no, it's not a psychogenic would be to look at how migraines physically affect the brain. Like where in the brain are these pain receptors or sensors, whatever, neurotransmitters working. And is does that differ from psychogenic headaches, like headaches seen in psychogenic cases? Because oh, maybe okay. yeah, like yeah. it's a completely different neural pathway or neural effect. Um, it would be so cool to do an MRI of someone experiencing a psychogenic headache and someone with an actual migraine to see which the differences of the brain are active, right? Yeah, that would be so cool. Okay, so there was a study that was done that compared the brain positron emission tomography, so PET scans, of patients diagnosed with psychogenic dystonia 
Um, so the, this caused painful muscle contractions in the leg. Um, and they compared it to patients with similar but organic or explainable dystonia of the leg. So, like, their brain scans – are they brain scans? Are PET scans always brain scans? Uh, no, because my mom had PET scans when she had her appendix issues. Okay, so they would take a PET scan of the leg, right? Okay, so then it goes on to say – sorry, I didn't really write my notes well for this one – that – uh, quote, both groups of dystonia patients had abnormal activity in the motor cortex of the brain, which controls voluntary movement and the striatum, which acts as a relay station. But there were marked differences between the two. So patients with organic dystonia had overactive motor cortexes and underactive striata, while patients with psychogenic dystonia had underactive motor cortexes and overactive striata. So it was inversed. So they were affecting the same parts of the brain, but just in inverse ways. Um, so not exactly the MRI of stress-induced migraines and... Um, headaches, but I feel like it would be like it would have a similar effect or outcome. Yeah, definitely. Um, That's so cool. Too bad we're not in school and we can't do that. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe we should look into programs and do that as a master's. <laughs> um, that would totally relate to your anthropology <laughs> background. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> We'll find a way. It'd be interesting for sure. Yeah, I agree. Um, if anyone takes this idea from our podcast, please let us know. I want yeah, to we're trademarked. Cite us in your thesis, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the forensics episode forty six. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyways, going back to the last, I don't have a lot left, but that was a good side tangent. Um, some brief statistics on mass psychogenic cases. 50% of cases occurred in schools and 29% happened at factories, which I thought were quite interesting given like the population there. Um, I feel like stress is both, er, sorry, um... I feel like stress is high in both of those locations as well. Yeah, I agree. I very much agree. And other places include towns and villages and then families and other institutions. So um, schools, though, and factories were the highest of those. Um, it didn't specify like elementary, high school, post-secondary, that kind of thing. Um. I think it would be a mix of all. I don't see why it wouldn't be. But an example of a mass psychogenic case was that a teacher reported smelling gas or like this strange odor and then reported not feeling well within the next following days. Students and other staff then reported those same symptoms and many went to their local clinics and it was detected that no or sorry, it was determined that there were no gas leaks or other known causes for the smell. Um, so it, it gets a bit tricky when you come to label something as my mass psychogenic or a mass psychogenic illness, because on one hand, like you've been able to minimize unnecessary testing and prevent further panic by, um, you know, labeling it as psychogenic and not like a gas leak or cancer or like, a toxin that's spreading. Um, 
But on the other hand, there's this like perception of having this poorly executed investigation that exists, um, which, you know, can further cause distress and anger within the community. So you kind of have to decide what route to go. Um, And, you know, it may be seen as quite invalidating if all of these people are experiencing, you know, these physical symptoms and you have these doctors going, "Mm, well, tests look normal. You're fine. It's just all in your head, which that's not how they'd say it. But basically I feel like people who would hear that, that's how they would hear it. Um, but in an article written by Leslie Boss, um, she goes on to say that, quote, it's also been called a culture bound stress reaction in which two separate mechanisms are at work End quote. Um, so like we've talked about, you have your anxiety aspect, um, but then you also have your motor component. And so the uh, anxiety, this is like your physical symptoms, like headaches, abdominal pains, dizziness, fainting, um, you know, hyperventilating, that kind of stuff that we we've discussed. Um, and then you have the motor aspects and this is the stuff that includes like convulsions involuntary laughing was an example of it. Then you also have hysterical dancing and, um, other symptoms. So you then have that combination of the two um, with the anxiety component being more at the forefront than motor components. But there are, while there are a bunch of these different theories that Rebecca talked about, and I, I kind of briefly mentioned it, but I do think it's kind of possible that people who experienced or who lived through and were a part of these um, dancing plagues throughout the years, it could have been the case that they've experienced some form of motor symptom of psychogenic paroxysmal dyskinesia, um, which then would result in this uncontrollable dancing between large groups. So you have that mass psychogenic paroxysmal dyskinesia, and then, you then further reduce that down to your motor symptoms. So you had that hysterical dancing, you had the laughing, like the uncontrollable movements, that kind of stuff. Um, So yeah, that's my take on it. I don't know if you guys have other possible theories that you kind of um, have thought of as I've gone over this, but yeah, that's what I have for psychogenic disorders. Thank you. That's very, very interesting. I didn't, I was really excited for this episode because I didn't know anything about the dancing play or psychogenic disorders. So Mm -hmm. it's really nice to just like, I don't know, learn, learn, Um, learn something new. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't really have any theories surrounding the dancing plague other than like, yeah, it definitely could just be a psychogenic disorder where everyone is just on the same wavelength or I think it was probably a good combination of stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it was the ergot or ergo or whatever, like that bread fungus that has been theorized to be the cause of a lot of um, Mm -hmm. historical events. I think, yeah, that plus psychogenic plus stress plus just that time period. (laughs) Exactly. Could have caused it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think I definitely agree. Like, I I don't think, I don't necessarily think it started 
by being like a psychogenic disorder. Like maybe someone was bitten by a tarantula mm-hmm. or maybe someone was infected by like they did eat some ergot or ergo however you say that (laughs) um but i definitely think that like as people continued to see this erratic behavior continuing like obviously they got stressed out as well and as rumors continued to grow around the town because like many of these cities yes they were big but still it seems like it in terms of like the i don't want to say like peasant folk you know like working people like not royalty like everyone kind of knew everyone so rumors were spreading very fast and i just yeah i i feel like it could have very quickly spiraled into a mass psychogenic illness but it definitely could have started as something very different and very like physically legitimate yeah i agree all right. Well, thank you um, to both of you. This is a very, very interesting episode. It's a little bit different than what we usually do, but I think it's a, a good mix up for us. Yeah. Um. So our next I love topic. Talking- oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I was just going to say, I love talking about historical cases. They're just, they're, they are, like you said, pretty different than what we talk about, but I don't know if they're just history's fun history's so cool exactly (laughs) no it's so interesting because like we've never been exposed to this like history for us is like a hundred years ago that's mostly what we learn about but to hear about like ancient ancient history is like really really interesting Mm -hmm. um yeah so our next topic is fairly recent history um (laughs) casey anthony and odor analysis and I think this episode's going to be really good, especially because wasn't Casey Anthony just released from prison or something? She's been all oh, over my TikTok. I don't know. What? I'm not sure, but I do yeah. know that they just released a documentary. I'd like to say it was on Amazon Prime. And she is like featured in the documentary, like talking about her role in this case and how she's innocent. So I'm really excited. She's big news right now. So our timing for this episode is really good. I'm, I'm very interested to learn about that. I hope you come with updates to that episode because I will. nothing's like popping up right as it is when i do a quick search of her name okay but there Maybe is she's not like out of um, she might not be out I don't of know. jail but i there's there just are been, articles that are like two weeks ago three weeks ago december oh so like there's still recent articles i just yeah i'm curious to see yeah so i'm really excited about that episode especially because i think i'm on i research casey anthony yeah so um yeah it'll be Interesting. It's kind of a heartbreaking case. Yeah. Um, if what we think is true is true. Um, but yeah, so tune in next episode for Casey Anthony and odor analysis. Um, Nicole will probably get heated on the, <laughs> or no, Rebecca's on odor analysis. You'll probably get, I'll heated. still probably get <laughs> heated. <laughs> oh, that's such a fake forensic science. Yeah. I know I'm going to get a little heated on that. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be a fun episode. Um, so for a joke, um, I had a good one and then I lost it. So I have a mediocre one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I guess we'll settle. I guess we'll settle. Yeah. We still love mediocre jokes. They all make me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) So this one is why don't dogs make good dancers? Why? Because they have two left feet. 
Oh. <laughs> See, it's not funny at all. <laughs> and they have two right feet as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. I was going to say two left feet, but then I was like, no, they have four. So, <laughs> no, I get four it. Four left feet. <laughs> four left feet. Four legs. <laughs> four feet. I forgot they've got left and rights as well. That's Oops. okay. Um, so, Rebecca, where can people find us? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Uh, you can also find us at Twitter at WT Forensics PC or our website where we post all of our source images and our source links at uh, www.whattheforensics.ca. Um, if you want to get in contact with us and send us some suggestions for future episodes or you have any questions about the episodes we've already done, uh, that would be at our email, whattheforensics at gmail.com. I will note that we are most frequent or most active, sorry, on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, so definitely be sure to check out those. And if you want to get in contact, we will most probably frequently respond to our Facebook just because we're on there every day. Um, but yeah, those are all of our socials. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. And yeah, just um, make sure to give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It keeps us relevant and we would like to hear what you like about us. Um, and so with that being said, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Bye. 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 Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm -hmm.